Driver off the first, you hit it OB. So it's back to the box, hitting three off the tee. Skull wedge to the front of the green, then three putt. I think it's time for a drink. Grab a beer and some friends. We'll go till we reach the 19th hole at the end. Keep it rolling till the sun goes down. back to another edition of the Friars Golf Podcast. Uh, this is Scott Alphin with my partner in crime, Matt Lawless. What's happening? Not too much. Uh, just a, another day in paradise. Uh, happy to happy to be here. Happy to be recorded today. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm excited about this one today. It's going to be a fun, uh, fun conversation, a fun interview. Uh, we are recording this on Monday, March 14th, weekend after uh, the selection show. Uh, basketball madness has begun. I am very partial. My, I'm a huge Virginia Tech Hokie, and we just had an amazing weekend winning four in a row. Knocked off Clemson, knocked off Notre Dame, and then we took down Tobacco Road, took down the UNC Tar Heels, and then, and then upset Duke in the championship game. I'm, I've had a great weekend, Matt. <laughs> Yeah, I was, I was thinking of you and and some of our other fellow friars, all uh, all the Hokie fans out there, kind of kind of really took their their destiny in their own hands. Uh, looked like kind of coming into the last weekend that they'd probably be on the outside looking in for the bubble. I mean, they they, they got hot at the right time right time, which is which is what you need. So it seems like maybe they they found a found another good coach there in, in Virginia Tech. Yeah, Mike Young's phenomenal. I'm I'm pumped. He's a, he's a Southwest Virginia guy uh, through and through, and and uh, it's it's all good stuff. I'm I'm excited for the March Madness. You know, March Madness to me starts getting me in like springtime mode. You know, March Madness is here, and you've got three or four weeks of this, and then we roll right into the Masters. So this time of year is some of my favorite. Oh yeah, that's I I have that argue with my wife regularly. She's a she's a big proponent of fall being the best time of the year, but for me it's it's spring. I don't know if it's just being cooped up all winter long. Um, the dark. Dark, dark days at, at five o'clock in the afternoon, and and uh, I, I don't like seeing all the, the trees dead and all that stuff. So, as I'm out like this time of year, start walk the dog and seeing all the trees and the flowers bloom, and like kind of know right around the corners, uh, the, around the masters. And then, uh, for us, I mean, golf season, being able to play after work and that kind of thing really starts to ramp up. So, for my money, spring is spring is the best time of the year. We might just be blessed here in North Carolina that. The weather's kind of perfect for us for for two or three months until the dog days of summer arrive. But yeah, it's uh, it's, it's starting to really feel like spring around here. Yeah, and and you know something else about this week is St. Patty's Day is Thursday, and I love Guinness, so this always gets me in the uh, in the Guinness kind of mood. You know, go, going and uh, having a few cold uh, cold pints and and uh, and celebrating St. Patty's Day on Thursday is a good time as well. Oh yeah, that's uh. We, my wife and I were in in New York, uh, right right around the holidays, and I was able to find there's a, a I'll have to find the name of it. Maybe post it in one of the links. There's a golf bar right in the middle of Manhattan that like you walk into it and you think you're in the middle of uh, of St Andrews or, or or somewhere in Ireland. I mean, it just has all decked out and like the the British pub vibe. They've got a bunch of Shane Lowry bags up on the top. They've got the they've got a big giant uh nice. sign on the wall that looks like the Open Championship, the bright yellow thing, and that's what 
just the 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 downside of the pandemic was was not being able to get as many draft beers, and that was the first thing. As soon as we sat down, I said, "Give me a Guinness," because they had they had a few taps with it running, and they they did a great pour on it. But yeah, that's just I'm saying with you that it just it just hits differently. It's uh this this time of year is perfect for it too. Yeah, and speaking of speaking of cold beverages, you know, while we're sitting here doing this, we we just uh, formed a new partnership with one one of our uh, one of our fryer friends who owns uh, a new drink company, new innovative drink company called Four Craft Cocktails. You know, let's give a shout out to them. Oh um, yeah, uh, Turner and his his crew at Four Craft Cocktails have decided to partner up with us. Uh, and uh, help support the podcast and help help us grow. And we're going to promote the heck out of his drinks. And and I mean, I tell you what, I, I poured one uh, last evening uh, over some ice, and what a nice transfusion! It was delicious. Yeah, those are those are dangerous. I'm hoping. Uh, I know right now they're they're primarily in in Virginia, but uh, might have to as we have some friars coming coming across the border, might have to smuggle some down here to to North Carolina to us. But yeah, it's uh, I'm looking forward to hopefully having some of those this weekend. Yeah, yeah, looking forward to it, and and uh, hopefully we can keep that partnership with Turner and his folks at Forecraft going. That's good stuff. But let let's uh, let's tee up this this interview we've got today. Uh, I know you're excited about this because this is right up right up your alley. But we're we're gonna be uh, thrilled. We are we are thrilled and very fortunate to have Mr. Bo Welling uh, with Bo Welling Design. Uh, he. Um, has his own golf design business. They they do all types of things across the world. They're global, and uh, we're gonna have a conversation with him about his uh, his his golf life, uh, how he got into the business. Uh, I believe he had a about a ten year stint with Tom Fazio, and now his his own brand and his business is blowing up across the world. So we, we're excited to to meet with him, and I know I know Matt, you're excited to, act, to you know kind of dive into his brain as well. Yeah, this is another one. Just kind of as the as the Friars world turns, kind of the seven degrees of bacon uh, of Kevin Bacon. Um, this is another one. Thankfully to our, our Friars network, uh, shout out to Amanda Barbie. Uh, really helpful. She she works with Bo Welling. Uh, I think she said she's been there uh, just under a year now, uh, but she kind of knew uh, that we we were kind of running this this podcast, and and she knew what he was like and his golf course design seems to really overlap with the Friars. And we'll, we'll really get into that. Um, the one that the Friars probably know the best will be blue Jack national. We were just there. Uh, so really looking forward to this, this interview. Yep. Yep. Well, let's, uh, let's take a quick break. Uh, and I guess at this point we'll, we'll tee up a little ad for our buddies at uh, four craft cocktails. Let's, let's go ahead and pay, pay some dues there. And when we get back, we will be uh, interviewing Mr. Bo Welling with Bo Welling design. Our official sponsor, Forecraft Cocktails, features golf-inspired, ready-to-drink beverages, including the Transfusion, which blends premium vodka, ginger ale, grape juice, and a squeeze of lime. Don't waste your time at the turn or the beverage cart waiting for someone to mix your drink. Speed things up with these grab-and-go Transfusion cans, perfect for an emergency nine or your next Friars golf trip. Forecraft also has several other cocktails on the way, including a Bloody Mary, Ranch Water, and Tea which is their version of a vodka lemonade tea. Forecraft cocktails feature real spirits, gluten-free, and all-natural ingredients. Please go to Forecraft Cocktails to see the store locator or follow them on Instagram at Forecraft Cocktails. Sip, 
swing four. As always, you must be 21 or older to purchase and please drink responsibly. Welcome back to the Friars Golf Podcast. Uh, Scott Alfin here with my partner in crime, as usual, Matt Lawless. What's happening, Matt? Not too much. Uh, just another day in paradise. I hear you. Uh, St. Patty's week, as we were talking about earlier, can't wait to get to Thursday and get a couple nice Guinness in my hand, uh, if not before then. But uh, what a great week. Uh, spring is here. The Players' Championship is wrapping up. March Madness is here. My Virginia Tech Hokies had a fantastic weekend. Life couldn't be better for me. And I think it's getting better uh, as we go forward with this interview. But uh, we are very thrilled, uh, thankful for his time. But we're joined today with Mr. Bo Welling with Bo Welling Design. Welcome to the show, Bo. Thanks so much. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Yeah, we're, we're thrilled to, to get to know you a little bit, understand a little bit about you know what got you into the golf business and here all the, the cool stuff that you have going on right now. So let's just, just jump right into it. But what, what got you into golf? I mean, as a kid, I, I know you play, 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 you know, I know that you play golf. I know that you play golf in college. What got you into the sport? Uh, I know it's, I know you have a passion for it. Just tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm from Greenville, South Carolina and, you know, golf was a big thing in our part of the world. And I, my dad, you know, sawed off clubs for me. And so I started playing when I was two, uh, or at least there are pictures of me swinging these sawed off clubs at age two. I just turned 52 last week. And so that means that's 50 years playing this game. And you'd think I'd be a lot better at it now after 50 years of practice, but that doesn't seem to be how it works. Um, but in any event, golf was, a big, <laughs> golf was a big part of my life growing up. Um, and uh, it was a big sort of manifestation of probably – you know, my, my relationship with my father, you know, so many of my memories go back to being on the golf course and just very fortunate to grow up in a wonderful club, a place called Greenville Country Club in Greenville, South Carolina. And we had a par three course and a little bit easier 18 hole sort of friendly golf course. And then we had a, at the time, a top hundred championship golf course called Chanticleer. And so it's just really a great place to kind of grow up and kind of learn the game and get proficient in the game. And, and it was almost like you, you started as a, a junior at this par three course and it had great PGA professional-led programming, and uh, we got to be good and then could go on the big course and got to be good. And then, you know, by the time we're teenagers, we're over playing at the top 100 course, you know, having games against adults and whatnot. And so it's not, a, a, I think, a surprise that the Greenville Country Club sort of created a lot of golfers, either passionate golfers or accomplished golfers or, or people like me that are in the golf industry. Um, so in any event, that was a great environment. I did play in college uh, at Brown University. NCAA powerhouse Brown Bear golf team. And I'm pretty sure that when you're from the Southeast and go to the Northeast to play collegiate golf, that's, that's not a sign that you're particularly very good. But I had a great time there and uh, made great, wonderful relationships and friendships that last till this day and got to play lots of wonderful, great golf courses in the Northeast. And somewhere along the way, um, I, I'd been the kid that kind of drew golf holes growing up, but I never really seriously thought about golf course design. But while I'm at Brown, I uh, it's Brown's sort of a wacky, weird place. And it, it, at some point you have to you, there's no real curriculum and you can do whatever you want. And grades are optional. But at some point you kind of have to say what you're going to do. And, and so I was debating, you know, am I going to study physics or science or am I going to do art? Like that's how coherent I was. And I literally woke up with this epiphany of, wait a minute, golf course design, that's sort of technical and engineering, but 
creative and artistic and, and I played golf and right across the street was the Rhode Island School of Design and they had a landscape architecture program was, and us as Brown students were able to take classes there. And so I sort of started pursuing this whole idea that maybe golf course design was something that I was interested in. And Tom Fazio was building a place called Thornblade in Greenville back home. And my father was one of the developers of that project. And so I started calling Mr. Fazio and asking him, how does one become a golf course designer? And he basically had to take my phone call because I was like a son of a client. And so that all morphed and ultimately I went to go work for him as a summer job kind of all throughout college. And, and from there, you know, it ultimately led me into this, this industry. Wow. Uh, you, you really hit on something there. Um, I guess it seems like your, your summer jobs kind of panned out. I don't know if you have any plans for what you want to do when, when you grow up, but this is a, seems like a pretty good uh, summer job for you so far. Uh, you really hit on something. I, I wonder if there's, there's something more to it there. I'm, I'm, I'm a massive Mike Strantz fan. Um, and I'm sure you obviously, I'm sure you know the background, but you hit on something that you were kind of between um, various things, but you, you mentioned art. I mean, that's, that's what I'd always heard stories of Mike was, I think he was a art major at, at one point. Um, and you really see that with his golf courses. Caledonia is one that kind of comes to mind. Um, and you kind of mentioned the landscape design is that's one that I feel like you can really see the art and the, the, the blending of, of golf course design and landscape design. Um, do you think there, there is that kind of a, are you guys kind of outliers in that regard within the golf design industry? Do you think, or is that uh, more common as, as, as people might not realize? Oh, I, you know, I think a lot of people in the golf design world have studied landscape architecture. Um, I think Mike Strantz, who, you know, who also had worked for Tom Fazio, uh, was particularly an incredible artist and accomplished artist and, you know, graphic design sort of oriented person. Um, and he certainly took his art and fused it with what he did in golf and, and took it to this, you know, very amazing sort of levels. I think you have, you know, you have in golf course design, you have the sort of concept of, you know, discovering golf holes, uh, you know, these wonderful, incredible sites and just, you know, and then you have other realms where you sort of have to manufacture golf holes. And I think that, that when you get in a situation where you have to manufacture something, I think you want it to look like it's of nature. And, and I think there, there definitely becomes a sort of artistic component to all of that in, in order to try to go do that. And, and certainly Mike was, uh, was incredible in the way he, he approached what he did. And he was a wonderful human being too. I was very fortunate to get to spend a little bit of time with him. And, um, and uh, he was just a really special person and I uh, hope everybody gets to continue to go enjoy his golf courses because they're certainly very special. Yeah, it definitely is. He's always kind of one of those what, what if scenarios. He's been gone for, I guess, almost 17 years now. Um, or maybe a little bit longer, but thinking, if, if he had the opportunity, it seems like kind of golf is, is kind of morphed in, in recent years, but would have been, would have loved to have seen what he would have continued to do as, as some courses are starting to kind of pop up again, new builds and stuff like that. But um, very interesting. You, you kind of hit on something. Um, I, I kind of would like to hear kind of your, your input from uh, your expertise talking about um, seeing and, and building golf holes. Uh, and I know you probably with your work with, with Fazio and, and some of your own design, um, can you kind of talk to the, the challenges between building a, a golf course from scratch? And I'm sure the land is going to drive a lot of what you see, but um, that versus doing restoration work. I mean, I'm sure that's probably a lot of the membership driving that or something like that. But uh, can you just kind of explain that process a little bit to us? Sure. And I, I mean, I can speak to it for me and I think other people may have different answers to your question, but 
I, I come from a long line of accountants. And, uh, and so my, you know, sort of conservative Southern accountant grandfather, uh, every Sunday around the dinner table would point out that the food that the family's about to eat was the result of the, of the work the family had done for the clients that, that week or month or whatever it was. And so I think I have a very much a, a client orientation, like that's sort of primo in terms of how we, when we approach jobs and things, we certainly have our own <clears throat> beliefs and desires and philosophies, but I think we, we view our role as really serving someone else and helping someone else accomplish their goals and objectives. And so those goals and objectives can be very, very different depending on the people, depending on the land, depending on whatever's driving the decisions to go forward with, whether it be a new build or, or a restoration or a renovation or, or you know, enhancing an existing asset. So we spend a lot of time up front on, on all our processes of trying to understand what people are trying to do and accomplish. And, and, and so in some ways that's much easier on a new build because um, it, it tends to be fewer number of people that you're trying, fewer clients, if you will, trying to make you know, set those goals and objectives. I think when you have a club situation or a multi-stakeholder situation and, and these multi-stakeholder situations evolve in things outside of club to clubs too, say, you know, big public type projects that have, you know, big impact in terms of public stuff. And we're working on a couple of those that, are, you know, one in Chicago and, and one in, in DC, but these multi-stakeholder things are more complicated because in essence you have lots of clients. And so we've spent a lot of time sort of developing processes to interface with, you know, disparate groups of people to try to get, whether that be club members or, or, or different members of the public to help make collective decisions about how to go forward. And, and so I think that to me is the biggest difference is, is that it's sort of this goal setting uh, and how you get to goal setting and how do you get to consensus kind of around goal setting. That's probably not the answer you're expecting me to say. So if you want to, follow back up and drill down. No, that's, I mean, that's, that's kind of, I wanted to hit, I mean, that's, that's obviously it. Um, and I'm sure there's always, always challenges. Like if you're trying to appease one owner wanting to build a course versus like, like you said, there's numerous stakeholders involved. Um, I know just kind of tying in with, with the friars and, uh, and like to get you kind of involved. And I, I haven't had the opportunity to be there yet. Um, I know Scott has, I'll let him kind of jump in, but one, I know the friars were just there at blue Jack national. Uh, and that one, Seems like a way more than just a golf course that kind of went into it. Um, Scott, I know you 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 love Blue Jack. I'm sure you've had some great experiences there. Yeah, um, yeah, I've, yeah, I've been I've been very lucky to 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 be invited to Blue Jack outside the Friars, and then I played with the Friars. And as soon as you get on property there, from the time you drive through the gates until you 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 know you, know, you start seeing all this adult playground stuff, you know. The football, the football goals to kick field goals. You see the pool, and then you you pull up there, and it's just five star service. You know, service is out of the out, of, out you know out of this world, and then the facilities are just amazing. It's just such a fun environment and great conditions. Yeah, I'm interested to hear you know how how involved you are with that project, and 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 maybe anything that's going to be happening new at Blue Jack. Sure. So Blue Jack National is outside of Houston, Texas, and it's uh, on about 750 acres of ground. It features a 18-hole Tiger Woods golf design golf course, as well as a 10-hole short course. Um, and but it's all these other amenities. And so my involvement at Blue Jack was sort of twofold, or our involvement. Mm -hmm. So my company, uh, you know, helped Tiger with his golf design efforts. But in addition, we did all of the land planning for everything that kind of happened around golf and specifically all, all the amenity planning. So all the sort of fun stuff that you're talking about, 
we would have had a big, big factor in. I think there, there are kind of two things. I think when Tiger first got involved in golf course design, he was very intentional of that he wanted to be involved in great places, but he also wanted to be involved in places that lots of different people could go and enjoy. Like he really was into this idea of, I want you to come not have to be a great player in order to go enjoy a golf course that I'm involved in the design of. Um, and so there's a lot of that at Blue Jack for sure. I think that in terms of my own personal journey, you know, I, when I got first that, that epiphany moment that I had at Brown way back when of wanting to get involved in golf course design, it was because I was a golfer and it was like the idea of the test of the game of golf. Like that was what, what, what interested me about wanting to become a golf course designer. But once I worked for a while, um, back in the Fazio shop, I started to realize that some of the places that I really thought were the coolest, yeah, they had great golf courses, but they were more than that. They were these great environments that where people really kind of came together and had these human moments. And it could be on the golf course. It could be after the golf course. It could be just near the golf course. And I thought that was really cool. And I started looking back over my life and, and even, I even said it here in our intro, you know, I, I think back about me and golf and I think about memories with my father and I think about these friends that I have lifelong friends that I have that I grew up with at the Greenville country club. And I think about these friends that I have lifelong friends that I've met at Brown university. And I, I skipped over the part where I, I lived in Ireland and went and played links golf for a year. And I have all these incredible friendships from over there. And, and so sort of the human side of golf are, is what has drives me now. It, it, you know, I still think the test of the game is, is very important, but I'm, I, I think I'm personally sort of into this idea that golf helps foster and build community. And so in any event, if you, you sort of take Tiger's orientation of what he wanted to do with golf course design and sort of maybe some of our orientation of us planners trying to create great places and spaces for people to come together and have these human moments. In a lot of ways, Blue Jack National is like all of that to the extreme. And so I think, uh, you know, you can go to Blue Jack and you can be a Tiger Woods level player and there is enough challenge out there to, to truly test you but you could really be a 25 handicap golfer and go out to blue jack and you're not really going to lose a golf ball unless you hit it in the water uh you're going to be able to find it play it and play it again and you're going to have a great time and you're going to be able to do that with the people you're with whether they're good players or not good players and that's on the golf course and then once you get off the golf course there's all these you know fun other amenities these hang type amenities these moments that just really help foster human connection whether that's buddy to buddy you know client to business associate or family, whatever it is. I think we're, we're trying to kind of promote all of that with Blue Jack and, and around the game of golf. And we've got a great developer there uh, and sponsor there and, and that sort of bought into all of that. And so when you ask about the future of Blue Jack, I mean, we're, we're, we're looking at how we continue to have it evolve and, you know, we're starting to have, look at other possible amenity additions and things and, and so Blue Jack is uh, is happening and happening in a big way, and there'll be more evolution as it as it, it continues to grow up, so to speak. That's awesome, yeah, Bo. Bo, Bo I, I'd like to just ask this on, and this doesn't relate just to Blue Jack, but as far as people, you know, requesting a uh, replica hole, you know, obviously twelve at Blue Jack is a replica of twelve at Augusta, but do, do you do you have many clients that are that request? replica holes of different different courses yeah so i would say that i mean i might take a little bit issue with saying the 12 at blue jacks a replica it certainly has some elements that look like the 12 at augusta but that was really what was what was there so so it was never our intent to say we're trying to copy that hole whatsoever but but 
there was an existing golf course at Blue Jack before we started. And so some elements of that green setting were already there. And so really it was just sort of a matter of working off of that. Where we've really done the, the, the whole that I would say that we've done most recently that truly is a replica is that uh, with Tiger's involvement at the Hay at Pebble Beach, we did a replica of the, of the seventh hole from the big course on the par three course, which was the, the second hole. And, uh, and it's, you know, with the exception, the, the, the notable big exception of the Pacific Ocean being right behind the hole, um, it really is all, you know, pretty close exact sort of replica. And so that's, those are neat. And I've done a couple other in the course of my career, but that would be more the exception than the rule of, of thinking that has a, a place. I think it only has sort of its right place in sort of certain sort of situations. Sure, sure. That's a that's a perfect segue. I wanted to kind of ask. I know you you've had some other projects with Tiger um, as well. You were involved with the Hay, uh, but I know you also were involved recently with the the new short course at um, was it Glen Cove at, at Old Edwards, uh, the Saddle. Um, one as a as a golfer that that travels around a lot, and you know, it's got the same way. I mean, I can't can't say like how much fun these little short courses popping up everywhere are. Um, but I'd kind of be like to hear your uh, your opinion about, I mean, the, the challenges or, or the benefits of, of building one of these short courses that seem to be thankfully popping up everywhere now. Um, seems like every resort kind of realizes they need they need that as an extra amenity there. But uh, could you talk about the ones you've been involved in so far? Yeah, so we've been fortunate to be involved in, in several now. So the Saddle at Glen Cove, which you mentioned, uh, we did a collaboration with Gil Hans at uh, – the, the, the swing, which is at PGA Frisco. Uh, we've done another one for Omni uh, called Little Sandy that we open in Amelia Island here soon, um, as well as a handful we've done with Tiger. But anyway, the saddle at Glen Cove in particular was uh, the ownership there was the old Edwards Inn. And uh, they had this club that they had bought called and rebranded the old Edwards Club. And, and Mr. Williams, the owner of the old Edwards Inn, very much was looking at how do we, how do we create some amenities at the club to sort of drive, um, you know, interest from younger people. And, and I think when in, in his mind, he really meant grandchildren. Like, how do we do stuff that grandchildren would like to, to be involved in? And, and so the short course idea had emerged, and we ultimately sent him around a couple of other places that we had worked on, and that even made it into a bigger thing with the big kids' activity barn and whatnot. But one of the, and it's been a huge success. And what, what's happened is that it's sold incredibly well, as, as have many things in the last 24 months. But um, but it's been interesting. It's not necessarily sold for grandkids. It's sold for families. So the average age of, of the Oilers club has, has gone down like radically. So, and it's a big part of this, this, this edition called Glen Cove, which has the par three course called the saddle. I think if I hover up and I, I'm a big believer in the short course thing. And, uh, and, I, and if, if I start looking at why, like, what does it do? If you sort of go to the strokes gain statistic, and if you were to compare a PGA tour player with an average, scratch handicap in the United States, that differential is about five and a half shots. But if you peel back and look at where those shots are, it's really uh, tee to green. So about four of the shots happen on the, the longer shots. And as you go down the handicap scale, I think that that it only gets exacerbated, if you will. And so the beauty of the short course is that it really removes the shots that people that aren't so good really struggle with doing, i.e. long shots. And, and it's all about sort of short shots and putting, which arguably nobody really putts very well. So it's sort of this, 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 this equalizer, if you will, it's sort of something that really, regardless of your level of skill, you really can go and enjoy. And, and so I think that's very attractive to people, especially sort of beginners and, and new, newer 
player, I mean, uh, you know, beginners and uh, slower swing speed folks and whatnot. But I think good players enjoy it as well. We're big believers in doing a lot of shortcut grass around on the short courses to promote you know, playing the ball on the ground, which allows you to use your creativity. And then the good operators, you know, figure out how to activate these things and make them substantially more social and sort of the norms of the traditional 18 hole golf course start to kind of be a little bit different. And I have this great picture when we do presentations about short courses, I have a great picture from the saddle and it shows eight people on, on a golf hole and it's a grandfather and a young girl carrying her bag. Um, it's a young boy with a, uh, a tempo walk, you know, robotic caddy following him. Uh, but then mom is pushing a stroller and, um, and and grandma is there as well and and it's just this great dynamic of it it's just not what you'd see i think on a, a big sort of regulation 18 hole golf course and, and everybody has big smiles on their face and having fun and, and at the end of the day like that's what this is all about i mean this is supposed to be recreation this is supposed to be fun this is supposed to be enjoyment and i think everything that we we're trying to do these days is really trying to reinforce that whether that be through you know big long 18 hole golf courses like blue jack but certainly with these short courses as well and just the totality of the environment that we put golf in. Yeah, that's uh, another one. I, I was just uh, – Scott and I are both here in, in Charlotte, North Carolina, not too far away from me in, in Greenville. But uh, I was just out at, at Longleaf last weekend. It's just a fantastic little facility. Um, and they recently, I think about four or five years ago, opened up what they call the bottle brush. They had a little little piece of land kind of in the middle of the, the back nine where they put in six – six holes and it was kind of like you you mentioned the the picture at, at the saddle um i think the age range was probably spanning about 80 different years uh we were out there uh last weekend it's just it's fun i mean it's great for all ages um good way i think to kind of get the get the the, the wife or the kids or anybody involved um because you're right i mean I, I think one i mean you mentioned it hit the nail on the head that uh a lot of a lot of us amateurs lose a lot of shots on those those longer shots uh but also i mean you can kind of get a lot if you can get that short game a lot better um, that, that goes a long way. I, I don't know about Scott or, or the other guys, but I would rather go and loop a, a par three course a few times around than hit a bucket of balls any day, but, um, yeah. hoping, hoping that trend continues. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love, uh, Bo, I, I'm in Charlotte. I'm a member at, at Cabarrus country club. If you know the Charlotte area, I'm up okay. in Concord and, uh, we've got a little loop on our back nine. So I, I love to go out there sometimes and just play seven holes and just, and just be done with it, you know, on, on you know, since the time changed, it's very easy to do that, you know. So yeah. it's, I love the short course philosophy. I, I think one one question I have for you on golf course design or uh, construction, maybe even is, you know, Cabarrus. Even we're we're looking at redoing our bunkers. We have a, a terrible drainage problem, and and everybody mentions these Billy bunkers. I'm sure you're familiar with Billy bunkers, <laughs> but what what is what is a solution for? for bunkers these days? Like what's the, what's the, you know, how do you guys figure those out? So I think we as an industry probably learned a lot over the years about, about bunkers, but um, you know, so they're newer products um, in terms of lining the bottom, which, you know, better Billy bunkers, one capillary concrete's another, and they kind of do similar kinds of things in terms of, of holding the, 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 the under um, this, the subgrade of the bunker. Uh, in place uh, through time, but yet still allowing drainage to, to happen. Uh, and there are other products too that do things a little bit differently, like a bunker solutions, but, and, and there are others too. And so, um, so I think the liner technology has evolved. I think what we, our company at least, 
believes pretty strongly is, is how bunkers get shaped becomes very important in terms of trying to eliminate the amount of water that ends up draining into a bunker. Cause I think that's when you start to have a whole lot of problems. So, you know, a lot of the renovation work we're doing, we're looking at, you know, redoing bunkers, but kind of doing them in a different way to try to address maintenance things going forward. We're also doing, looking at a lot of places that have a strong desire to reduce the amount of bunker square footage that they have. I think the industry kind of went through a phase where, um, we, we all put in a lot of bunkers because it looked cool and looked good and all this kind of stuff. And, and, uh, and it does, right. But it also creates maintenance dynamics and, and costs and whatnot. And, you know, from a playability standpoint, every golf course design person, I feel like in the world says they want to challenge the best players, you know, but make them fun and playable for the higher handicapper. But if you really drill down and think about it, a bunker kind of does the opposite of that. So a good player generally can play out of a bunker pretty easily. In fact, you'll have some good players even intentionally hitting in bunkers in certain situations, but a not so good player really struggles with a bunker. So in terms of us, at least we've, we've started to spend a lot of time on investing the right amount of money and capital and building bunkers properly, but trying to be pretty efficient with how many bunker bunkers we have or how much square footage we have dedicated to sand. Right. Right. Yeah, that's uh, and then on the on the far extreme of that, uh, Friars, we I, we took a trip to to Bandon this past May. Um, my my second time there, first time being able to play the Sheep Ranch, and that's one of those kind of the, the discussion kind of around that one when when they opened up the discussion about the design was it was going to there weren't going to be any bunkers on the course. Um, and once you get onto that piece of property, you kind of understand why. I mean, it'd be hard to hard to keep sand in them with how exposed it is to the wind. But once you get out there and, and there's many ways to protect a, a golf hole from, uh, from the hot, from, from very good golfers. Um, there, you don't even, I, I played it and don't even remember missing on a bunker. And so, so it's just one of those things. Hopefully um, we find a happy medium there um, yeah. moving forward. Um, you kind of hit on, you kind of mentioned the, the short course uh, you're working on at, at PGA Frisco. Is that the, the West course that I, I've seen listed online? So there, the PJ Frisco is uh, it's 36 holes of championship golf. So it's the East course, which Gil did, and then the West course, which we did. And then in addition to the championship golf courses, there's a 10 hole short course called the swing, which we did collaboratively together. Then there's about 30 acres of practice uh, that we did. And then Gil did two acres of, of a putting course called the dance floor. And then in addition to that, there's PGA's of America's new headquarters. There's a 540-room Omni Hotel. And then there's North Texas PGA sections relocating there, uh, as well as having a facility for the Frisco Independent School District. Uh, and there's all this golf-oriented retail. So it's a pretty massive uh, place. It is uh, All the golf elements are done and grassed, and it's there's some occasional play, but it's not won't officially open until the Omni Resort gets done, which will be about this time next year. But this place is going to be radically significant, I think, in, in the game of golf. And PJ of America has already committed 20, over 20 championships to the facility. Uh, the big spectator events will happen on the East Course. So they've already committed two PGA championships uh, to Gill's course. And so these championships are going to put this place on the map. But with the PJ of America having 28,000 uh, members around the country, they're all going to be able to get to Dallas pretty easily in terms of airlift. And so the opportunity that PGA of America has to make an impact on the game is so huge uh, having this facility with the programming and the education and the innovation they're going to be able to do. It's, it's going to have a really far reaching effect on, on, uh, on the game of golf. And I just can't be more tickled and excited to have had, had the, 
had the chance to play a small portion in, in, in helping this become reality. Now, was uh, was your involvement there, was that limited to um, kind of the, the, the West course and the swing, or did you help out with like kind of the, the larger planning aspect of it as well? Yeah, so we did uh, – so Gil did the East course. We did the West course from a, technically a true golf course design standpoint. But then our company was basically served as the master planner of the whole site. So we helped locate the all the elements that I just spoke about as well as kind of help think through how the tournaments could work around – the big spectator events could work around the East course. And so it was a, a, a great involvement for us. And uh, like I said, just really, really honored to have been involved in it. And we developed a great relationship with, with Gil and Jim, uh, you know, during the, the time, because we really had to work so closely together because it was a, it was a tough site. It was constrained, you know, with a large floodplain area and having a lot of engineering sort of technical detail to it. And it, it I just, I'm so excited. I just can't wait for people to, to, for them to open and people to get out there and, and get to experience it. Hey, Bo, just, I mean, a quick pivot here. I, I just had a note here. Um, you know, uh, one of our Friar friends was able to help get us connected with you, and, and you know who that is. But I, I was told that you you have an interest in curling um, and and maybe have, have had some involvement in that. Is that. I'm interested to hear how you got into that and, and 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 uh, and what you're what you're doing now with that? So yeah, I am sort of like the Forrest Gump of curling. Um, <laughs> so curling, curling is an ancient Scottish sport, just like golf. Um, invented about the same time, but it's uh, now a Winter Olympic sport. And as as you guys know, I'm from South Carolina, and there's there's not a lot of a lot of ice in South Carolina. Maybe maybe not even a lot of people can spell ice. But um, I. Uh, I first learned about it just on television and I thought this was like the craziest thing I'd, I'd ever seen. Like, how could this be an Olympic sport? But being the sort of curiosity guy that I am, curious guy that I am, uh, it ultimately led me to show up in Bemidji, Minnesota one year for a national U S curling national championship. And I think everybody was so, so shocked that somebody from South Carolina would travel up to Northern Minnesota to watch curling in the middle of the winter that they kind of took me in. And um, I ultimately ended up becoming the, sort of first independent director on the board of USA Curling. And that led to a whole slew of things, but ultimately ran the 2009 Olympic trials for curling, which then led me to the Vancouver Winter Olympics with part of the U.S. delegation. And then I got super involved with the World Curling Federation and became the U.S. representative to the World Curling Federation, which took me to those, you know, five weeks in Sochi, Russia for that Winter Olympics and four weeks in Pyeongchang, South Korea for that Winter Olympics and in 2018 in Budapest at the World Curling Congress, I was elected to the board of the World Curling Federation. So right now I'm one of eight people governing the sport of curling on the planet Earth. So wow. it's it's been a long ride. And if I ever see you guys for a uh, very enjoyable ride, but if I ever see you guys for a cocktail, I'll tell you the the longer story, which is quite humorous, that it's, it's very much lost, you know, stranger in a strange land. Um, but it's been a wonderful experience and uh, just a great, incredible group of people. And, and you guys as golfers would start to pick up on things uh, very quickly. You know, golf and curling, you know, angles are very important to both. Uh, they're both sort of camaraderie based sports. They're integrity based sports. Um, they arguably are both sort of excuses to drink scotch, you could even say. Um, but they're, re they're really, they, they just as I said, said that, how golf helps build community is what fascinated me. It's sort of the same thing with curling. And so curling is a great, incredible 
group of people and honor-based people. And I've said it many times. I just think if the world had more curlers and same would be true if the world had more golfers, I think the world becomes a better place. And so I feel super fortunate to be involved in, in both of these uh, really awesome Scottish sports. Very well said. I, that's I, yeah. That, I, I, I'd love to know what's what's traveled you around the world more. Is it golf or curling? It's it's really been both. I mean, yeah. it's uh, they both are you know global sports now. And uh, and so like you asked earlier when I started, I said I was in Scotland or whatever. The preamble I told you I had to reschedule this guy to go to Scotland a little while ago. And you asked was it was it golf or, or pleasure? And I said it was a bit of both. Well, it actually was a bit of golf, a bit of curling, and and, and both of those are very pleasurable to me. So. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's been great and a great group of people. Yeah. I, I, I can only think my, my wife went to the university of South Carolina and, and, uh, I know anytime that they got a light dusting of snow, uh, they, they closed the campus and, and Columbia and, and, and Greenville's not too far off, even though it's the, uh, it's the mountain snowy region of, of South Carolina. If you, if, if that thing exists, but I can only imagine when you first, uh, started talking to people around Greenville wanting to bring curling there. I can almost, I, I kind of picture uh, cool runnings with the Jamaican bobsled team uh, wanting to start up a, a bobsled team in, in Jamaica. I can, I can only see that, that going down in, uh, in South Carolina, but so, I mean, that's, that sounds I, incredible. That's exactly. I used to, when I first got involved and I, I kept saying it, I'm going to start the redneck curling team. This is going to be like the Jamaican bobsled team. And, and I was all kind of a joke, but uh, when I did go to the, the, the winter Olympics in 2010, uh, there was, some local media about me being up there. And I, I literally started getting emails and calls and things from literally strange from people I did not know back home in South Carolina saying, Hey, I saw you on television. Is there any way we could start curling in South Carolina? And I, I really thought it was sort of, you know, these people can't be that serious. And this was, it was sort of early days of Facebook. And I set up a little Facebook page called South Carolina curling and I'm still in Vancouver. And before I know it, I've got like 800 people that have liked this thing. And I'm like, what in the world? This is like the craziest thing ever. And so in event, I got home. I went and met a couple of the more ardent people that had emailed me and texted me. And uh, I said, "If you're, are you guys really serious? You want to try to do this? And they were. We went to the local ice rink and that's, you know, to see like, would they, could they accommodate us? And they said, you know, we've been wanting to think about curling for many years, but we don't know anything about it. Yes, we'd love to help. So I did a Facebook blast out to the 800 people um, to say, hey, if you're really disinterested, show up at Rick Irwin's restaurant in downtown Greenville on this Saturday at four o'clock. And I thought maybe like eight people would show up. I had 128 people show up in April of 2010 that wanted to. And from that, we started the Palmetto Curling Club. And it is vibrant and happening. And uh, and it's just amazing that uh, we've been able to, to bring this to South Carolina. We've got a we've got a few uh, friend uh, friar friends that live in Greenville, so I think I might have to sneak down there one of these years to or, or one of these days to go down and, and, and try that out. I've uh, I've got a good friend, a good golf buddy, lives up in uh, in Madison, Wisconsin. As we were watching the Winter Olympics, this go go around. His wife uh, is coworker of some of the some of the female curling team, and and that's kind of, kind of started describing it. it to me. It seems like in Minnesota, Wisconsin, those those northern states. It almost sounds like curling leagues are like bowling leagues anywhere else and it's just uh i think it's just like you said it's it's a good excuse to drink scotch or beer or or what have you um it's a good excuse to do that socially but yeah definitely definitely sounds like a might have to be a road trip for us scott Let's yeah there's actually this. there's I actually give a plug wait so you guys are from charlotte there's actually an incredible curling club in charlotte so charlotte curling center there it's just north of town they've got a great dedicated facility it's it's absolutely fabulous so we need to get you guys out of the ice up there you guys might be naturals that, absolutely, absolutely. 
I can't be any worse at curling as I am at golf. So I might have to take, take that challenge. <laughs> hey, hey, Bo, I, I'd like to, to ask you a quick question. So um, your philosophies and everything that you have in regards to golf and, and, and what you're doing with design, it seems to pair up like perfectly with the Friars uh, because the Friars is all about, you know, having fun and camaraderie and, it's not about where you're from. It's about the experience and, and just and having one common interest, and that's golf. Um, and, and some of our fun stuff is, is uh, you know, not what happens on the course, but what happens before and after and, and during. Uh, so what, what we've been doing on the podcast is saying a, a couple different words or phrases and, and maybe getting our guests to respond to that, you know, first thing that comes to mind. Um, so, so the first one I'll throw at you is pace of play. Uh, it needs to be shorter. I mean, I, when you guys get a chance to play with me, you'll see like I'm one of the fastest golfers there, there is. So to me, it's like go hit and go on. So yeah, shorter, shorter is better. What about uh, mul mulligan? I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. If that uh, helps you keep having fun and playing in the game, that's fine by me. Absolutely uh 19th hole so so you so you're wrapping up your round and you're headed into the 19th hole what's what's your go-to well it kind of depends on the day but if it's been warm i'll probably have a, a nice cold uh beer and I've, I've i've unfortunately got haven't had weight fluctuations over the course of my life i've, I've realized i've really got to, to stick to kind of nasty light lightish beer so that would be the go-to i hear you we, we've got this uh We've got we've got this new sponsor that we're working with, uh, Forecraft Cocktails, and they they they're, they're doing transfusions now that you can just open a can and pour over ice, and that's a trans a good transfusion is my go-to. But that would uh, be good. That'd be good. I probably uh, my index is probably uh, unfortunately it's probably run up to about eight something these days uh, on the golf course on the first eighteen holes, but I'm pretty sure I'm a pretty scratch nineteenth hole golfer. Absolutely. Sounds like Friars material right there. And you always want to keep, I mean, you, you can never have your handicap too high. It doesn't sound like, but uh, that's right. you keep working on that. So, so this is a big one. This is the last one, but music on the course, you can say yes or no. If you say yes, you've got to tell us what's on your playlist. So I have no problem with music on the course. Um, I haven't said that I'm not a, one that normally generates it. So I, the guys I play with would be the generators of the music and, and they seem like they kind of go to sort of what we're old. So we're 52. So probably that, you know, anything from eighties to more classic rock is probably what ends up showing up on the music that gets played around me on the golf course. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate that. Go ahead, Matt. If you have something else. No, I, I think, I think that kind of wraps it. Uh, had a, had a, threw a lot at you and, and got a lot out of you. And I really, really appreciate your time. Um, really looking forward to, to kind of following uh, some of your future, future plans, letting to see, uh, see how the, the PGA Frisco, the, the PGA championship there, everything unfolds. Uh, we got some, some Friars friends in Dallas, so maybe we can get out there once, uh, once that finishes up. But yeah, I, I, I can't thank you enough for, for helping us out and, and, and taking some time out of your day to, to, to work with us on this. I, I really no appreciate it. At all. And we're about to do some work up at uh, Lake Norman. So maybe we can get you guys out there and show you some golf under construction too. So that, that'd be fantastic. Well, well Bo, the, uh, you know, I, I, for myself, I appreciate your generosity of the time. I know Matt does as well as the entire Friars golf club and everybody else that's going to be listening to our podcast is going to, you know, love this. Uh, discussion on, on what you do and, and learning more about you and your company. 
uh, we, we really appreciate it. Uh, so thank you again. No problem at all. It was a lot of fun. So, all right. This, th thanks. Thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, this is the Friars Golf Podcast. <laughs>